0: there, welcome to the Soil and Roots podcast, journeying together to cultivate deep discipleship. I'm Brian Fisher. This is episode three, The Magnificent Seven. We're just beginning our journey into deep discipleship together here in season one, so here's what we've explored so far. The West suffers from a great omission. Though modern Christianity preaches and teaches about making disciples, we're struggling to actually form them. We'll be exploring various reasons why this great omission exists, but one of the reasons is modern Christianity is sometimes confused about the definition of a disciple. For our purposes, a disciple is an apprentice of Jesus for the purpose of becoming more like him. That over time, we do the things he did. We relate like he relates, we love like he loves, we give like he gives. We hope and expect that through our journey into deep discipleship, our character becomes molded more and more to be like Jesus. Another term for discipleship is character formation, or spiritual formation. Though there are lots of different ways this lack of deep discipleship impacts our churches and culture, as individuals, it's normally evidenced through a sense of disconnection. But there must be more to the Christian life than what we're currently experiencing. We love our pastors and churches and Bible studies and fellowship, but there are times where we read the characteristics of the Christian life in the Bible, and it doesn't always match up to our actual experience. Are we living an abundant life? Jesus promised that we would do greater works than he did. Do greater works characterize my life? Am I truly able to forgive my enemies? One of the things that most likely distinguishes Soil and Roots from other really great deep Christian journeys is our excavation into this world of ideas. Theologian Dallas Willard taught that this journey into deep discipleship isn't simply about Christian traditions, or even our community groups, or our stated beliefs. It's a journey into uncovering the hidden ideas that shape and form us, these often unconscious assumptions and convictions that sit at the very bedrock of our soils. This first season, which runs through episode 13, is focused on helping us just get our arms and hearts around this concept of deep discipleship through the exploration of ideas. And These ideas aren't so much intellectual conclusions as they are our hearts' experienced realities. Now, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of ideas, but we're getting our feet wet by exploring just one, an idea of the gospel. Is the idea of the gospel buried deep into our hearts solely about Jesus as our personal savior or is our idea of the gospel aligned with the gospel of the kingdom? The good news that the king of the cosmos is redeeming and reconciling everything. There's a huge difference between those two ideas and they have an enormous impact on how we view the world and how we operate in it. So today we're going to dig in a bit more and we're again going to reference the creation picture visual aid, which you can find on the Resources tab at SoilandRoots.org. The creation picture provides some context for how we live and exist in the created order and how these ideas in our hearts form and change. So the outer circle represents all of creation. The mountains represent culture. The tree is you. The trees around you are other people. The roots represent your heart, and your roots are planted in the soil. The soil represents these powerful ideas that govern us, idea systems and how they impact our hearts, soil, and roots. Let's take a brief look at the mountains in the background. The Seven Mountains are simply a way of describing culture. They're the institutions or the areas in which we all live and operate in some form. The Seven Mountains are family, church, education, government, media, business, and arts and entertainment. The original concept of the Seven Mountains was developed by Bill Bright of Campus Crusade and Lauren Cunningham of Youth with a Mission way back in the 1970s. They've been used and, in some cases, abused ever since. We're not going to abuse them, we're just using them as a way of visualizing culture. Mountains fits well into our nature motif, and the Seven Mountains really do a pretty good job of describing and separating culture into various chunks that we can all understand. When it comes to ideas, these powerful assumptions, the Seven Mountains are idea factories, and they constantly package and distribute ideas of darkness and ideas of light. They're promoting and attempting to persuade our hearts to embrace their ideas all the time. Here at Soil and Roots, we distinguish between the ideas pumped out by culture and the ideas that actually form our hearts. We call these two groups ideas in the air and ideas in the soil. Now the most influential cultural mountain, by a huge margin, is family. Family has an extraordinary ability to form ideas in our soil because our hearts are so supple and malleable in the first few years of our lives. So as we finish up exploring this idea of the gospel today, it's important to consider how the idea of the gospel in our soil was formed. Was your heart's idea of this good news formed primarily through the mountain of family, or perhaps it was through church? Or maybe it was a combination of formal education or some sort of media. In the last episode, we talked about the difference between the gospel of salvation and the gospel of the kingdom, and how Jesus came to reconcile all four of our relationships with God, with others, with ourselves, and with creation and culture. The gospel of salvation is most certainly true, though it's essentially a subset of the broader gospel of the kingdom. They aren't different gospels. One is simply a reduction of the other. Another important component of deep discipleship is curiosity. So as we're exploring the good news of the kingdom, let's take a look at just seven of its characteristics to see if our heart's ideas of the kingdom align with how Jesus presents the kingdom. So number one, this kingdom began with the arrival of the king. This king didn't show up like many thought he would, He arrived in a rather unconventional way, born in a stable in a backwoods town in a forgotten part of the country. But when he was around 30 years old, John the Baptist proclaimed, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Number two, the king is also the key. Back in Colossians 1, Paul says we are transferred from the domain of darkness to this kingdom of light through our redemption in Christ. The king is the key. Number three, The kingdom is already here, but it's also not yet. Jesus came and incepted the kingdom, but has not yet fully consummated the kingdom. We're in this middle ground, this in-between period of time. So we are here in the kingdom, but Jesus has not yet finalized its overwhelming conquering of the kingdom of darkness. Number four. The kingdom is cosmic in scope. It redeems all four of man's relationships with God, others, ourselves, and with creation and culture. Now, just one sub-point on this. Some people's idea of the kingdom of light is that it refers to the church, the people who genuinely follow Jesus. When I teach Soil and Roots classes and ask everyone to define the kingdom, that's often the answer. But the kingdom of light doesn't mean the body of people who follow Jesus, though it certainly includes it. We find this spelled out in the Colossians 1 passage we've been exploring. Paul explains that Christ is ruling over everything, and then he says that Christ is also head of the body, the church. So he considers the kingdom and the church two separate things. The church is part of the kingdom, and it has a crucial role in the expansion of the kingdom, but the church is not the same thing as the kingdom. Alright, number five. The kingdom is both spiritual and physical. Much like the fact that many people assume the kingdom only means the church— Many people hold to the idea that the kingdom is only spiritual. It's solely about the transformation of the heart, so it's only invisible. Again, we find reduction here. The gospel of salvation is true, but it's a reduction of the gospel of the kingdom. The church is part of the kingdom, but it's only a part. The kingdom certainly is spiritual, but it's not only spiritual. It's also physical. It must be. There are numerous examples of spiritual transformation resulting in physical transformation in the Bible. Let's just talk about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus climbs the tree, spots Jesus, who tells him he's coming to his house for dinner. Zacchaeus has an encounter with Jesus Christ, and what's the first thing that Zacchaeus does? He makes economic restitution to the people he cheated. He makes physical changes in the physical world, the exchange of money, because of his spiritual transformation. This happens all the time, and it should happen all the time. When we choose to stop following ourselves and instead turn and follow the king, we make all sorts of changes to the physical world as a result of this inner transformation. At the birth of the church in Acts 2, people began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with anybody in need. In Acts 6, we see the early church making provisions for widows who are being neglected. Church history is filled with story after story of people who made small and large changes to the physical world because of their spiritual, invisible formation. For some people, the idea that the kingdom is physical becomes contentious because they assume we're talking about a palace or a country or even a theocracy. But as we'll explore in season four, the kingdom of God looks and operates very differently from our common understanding of kingdoms. Okay, characteristic number six. The kingdom of God is growing. There are three great parables in Mark 4 where Jesus specifically outlines the growth and progression of the kingdom of God. In the parable of the sower, he describes the kingdom as the good seed yielding 30, 60, or even 100 fold. In the parable of the seed, the kingdom sprouts up overnight. And in the third parable, The parable of the mustard seed, Jesus says, How shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? It's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. The kingdom is growing, and it cannot be stopped. One way to measure this growth is just by looking at the number of people who follow the king over time. There are roughly 2.4 billion Christians on the planet right now. That's about 30% of the world's population. Christianity remains the largest religion on earth. Now, how many of those 2.4 billion are actually following Jesus versus just claiming Christianity as a passive religion? Well, we don't know. But let's be conservative and say that only 1 billion people are actually following Jesus. There are 8 billion people in the world, so that's about 12% of the total population. So on the low end, we have 12%, and on the high end estimates, it's around 30%. Somewhere between 12 and 30% of the entire world's population is following the king in his kingdom. Seems like the kingdom is growing if we just look at people who profess faith in Christ. But let's pause. We might note that the world population is also growing So is the community of people in the kingdom of light growing faster than the world's population? Or has this community become stagnant? At the time of Christ, there were roughly 300 million people on earth. So how many people followed Jesus at the time of his death? Estimates differ, but most sources claim that between a few dozen and 500 people claimed to know Jesus at that time. Well, let's just say there were 500 followers at that point out of a population of 300 million people. What percentage of the world population were Christians at that time? Well, it's .000000 something percent. Really, really small. It's certainly a lot less than the 12-30% to of the world population right now. The point being that if we were just to measure the growth of the kingdom of God by people who profess to follow Jesus, it's grown exponentially over the last 2,000 years. Of course, other world religions have grown and are growing, But for Christians in the West, we often seem to forget that Christianity has exploded around the world and continues to grow with no signs of letting up. And number seven, the kingdom of God is greater than the kingdom of darkness. This is another characteristic of the kingdom that doesn't always seep into the idea of the gospel in our hearts. This conflict between the two kingdoms is not Star Wars. There is no force, there is no need to have a balance between good and evil. There is no yin and yang. Jesus Christ and his kingdom are greater than the kingdom of darkness. There's a passage where Jesus is casting out demons, and the Pharisees accuse Jesus of casting them out by the power of Satan. Here's how Jesus responds. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all of his armor on which he has relied and distributes his plunder. Jesus is taking a shot at the powers of darkness here. Jesus, the stronger man, is binding the darkness and plundering it. He's come to take his stuff back. And that's what he's been doing ever since. We'll explore the kingdom more fully down the road, but let's take a look at how this part of the story ends. If Jesus incepted the kingdom when he arrived, what happens to it at the end of this age? Paul lays out some information about this in 1 Corinthians 15. He's describing the order of resurrection, who gets their new and improved bodies and in what sequence. Here's what he says. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. What is our king doing right now? He's reigning and putting all enemies under his feet. Here's a little bit more information from the Revelation. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. At the end of the age, Jesus will finish off conquering the kingdom of darkness, it'll be consumed, as it were, and hand his fully established kingdom back to his father. Let's finish off today by picking up the story of the kingdom when Jesus comes on the scene. This new king arrives to challenge the rule of darkness, and he's not the king we expect. He doesn't come with trumpets and fanfare. He comes as a zygote, born months later in obscurity and grows up in a town that some think would be better left off the map. What a strange way for a king to appear. And yet, he splits time in two, and his arrival heralds a new kingdom. A kingdom that dives beneath the surface to transform the human heart. The very place where the kingdom of darkness first took his deadly aim. And though that transformation starts in the heart, it certainly doesn't stop there. This king of light repeatedly attacks and vanquishes the ideas of darkness with his ideas of his kingdom, and he proves his kingship over both the physical and spiritual realms by repeatedly ignoring the laws of physics and sending the sons of darkness screaming in fear. He stakes his claim as the rightful ruler of the cosmos, by boldly announcing to the kingdom of darkness and its strong man that he has arrived to plunder it. Our king forever proves his love, authority, and power by not only willingly dying for us who murdered him, but by then defeating the first and worst consequence of man's original rebellion, death. Just as the curse infected the entire cosmos, the reverse of the curse is happening cosmically. And curiously, Just as the father invited Adam and Eve to rule his creation, his son, the king, invites his children, his brothers and sisters, to participate in the expansion of his kingdom, his new creation, which is slowly, but inevitably, swallowing up the kingdom of darkness. As the roots of our hearts are rescued from the ideas of this domain of darkness, as our spirits become molded in the ideas of the kingdom of light, life springs up out of the depths of our soil, And we join our king as he makes things right. We are, right now, in the already but not yet. But we already know what not yet means. One day the king will present his kingdom back to his father, having rescued, restored, reconciled, and redeemed all of it. All enemies will be defeated, including the first and final enemy of death. The kingdom of darkness will be no more, although its destiny is even now sealed. It is, right now, being swallowed up in light heart by heart, idea by idea. The kingdom of God is growing, expanding, transforming, renewing, and it cannot be contained. This is the good news of the kingdom of God. This is the gospel. Is this the idea of the gospel in which our hearts are rooted? Hey, thanks for listening. If you'd like more information on Soil and Roots, check out the website at soilandroots.org. Have a question or comment, like to explore something, feel free to drop us an email at fish at soilandroots.org, and we'll see you next time.